All right, well, let's get started. Hope you're already there at Luke chapter 19. We're going to be starting in verse 28 in, in just a moment. So we are, um, we are making our way through, through Luke, and we are getting closer and closer with each week to the end of, the, of, of Luke's uh, gospel. And as we, getting, as we are getting closer and closer to the end of Luke's gospel, there's this, uh, maybe even our, in ourselves, this anticipation for when will it end, right? When will we finally uh, get there this morning? Well, we know that as what we've been talking about starting Luke 19, uh, I think two weeks ago, yeah, two weeks ago, that uh, we know Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer to uh, Jerusalem. And, and we know, because we know the end of the story, that as Jesus is moving closer and closer to Jerusalem, Jesus is moving closer and closer to the cross. The parable last week, the parable of the, the ten minus, helped us understood that they felt this anticipation as well as they were going to Jerusalem and the events that were going to take place were not the things that they thought were going to take place. And Jesus in that parable kind of unpacks some of those uh, misunderstandings that they had. Now, uh, one thing that we do see clear is, number one, they do not understand what's going to take place. What's even far clearer than that from the parable last week is that we see that Jesus is the Lord, and he is the, the reigning king who has enemies, and yet he also has servants that he calls to be faithful. And this king, Jesus, will return when he goes, he goes away, and he will return, and he will rule in righteousness, and will bring righteous judgment when he comes back. Now, in today's passage, we're, we're coming to one of those big events uh, in, in the Gospels, and that is the, the triumphal entry, and one of the, re, one, of the, one of the ways we kind of know it's a big event is every one of the Gospels talk about it. Every one of the Gospels give an account of the triumphal entry when, when Jesus comes into, the, uh, in, into, uh, into Jerusalem. Now, for us, this is, the, this is the beginning sign, the beginning mark of the Passion Week. Like, this is when the, the Passion Week, uh, excuse me, begins, uh, in a sense, for us as we uh, understand the last week of Jesus. But it also highlights for us that this is the beginning of when those misunderstandings are really going to come out, uh, are really going to come out of the people, but yet we're also going to see the purpose and mission of Jesus continue uh, as we know the cross is not too far away. So let's look at verse 28 and let's read this uh, together. So look at your Bibles, look at verse 28. And let's, let's get this, let's read this together. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where, in, where entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found just as he was told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. 
Kelly, I'm going to use that later for a brisket. The Lord has need of it. And as they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud, with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they have seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when they drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So there's a lot taking a place in this really big event that we like to call sometimes Palm Sunday. And we get the palm branches and things like that from uh, the, some of the other gospels. So this takes place the, the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. Um, and this is a very important part of uh, the church, very important event in the life of the church. In fact, the church has recognized this as Palm Sunday, set it apart, um, because again, it kicks off the, the Passion Week, which leads up to the cross, right? The cross on Good Friday and resurrection on Sunday. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that this event was fueled by a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of misunderstanding taking place here uh, in, in the passage, but there's also a lot of great insight as well. There's a lot of great insight that we see in the people. I mean, look, look what they say in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Right? This is what the, the crowds and the followers and the multitudes were, were saying and praising and rejoicing in God. This is great insight. They had great insight. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the King. That Jesus is the long-awaited ruler of Israel. That Jesus is the fullness of God revealed in the fulfillment of God's promises. That in Jesus, all of God's promises have their yes in Him. They see this. They recognize this. So there's a lot of great insight that is taking place here at the triumphal entry. But again, there's some great misunderstanding. There's some great misunderstanding as well. Because again, they believe that Jesus, if we make him king now, 
He's going to come into Jerusalem and he's going to conquer the enemies of Israel. He was going to free Israel, kick out Rome. But it wasn't going to be like that at all. That even despite their great insight, their expectations, their timing, and their fulfillment was wrong. Jesus would take his throne. Jesus does take his throne. But it doesn't come through strength. And it doesn't come through power. But it comes through his suffering. It comes through his death. And it comes through his resurrection. And the throne that Jesus would take after his resurrection and his ascension was the throne that he would take in heaven. Not a throne in Jerusalem. And Peter preached this very truth in Pentecost, saying, This Jesus God raised up, and, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Peter saw it a little bit later, after Pentecost. Paul tells us the same things, that, that God has raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. It also tells us that the, the root of our rejoicing and our thankfulness and our peace is that Jesus is on the throne. Things could be going crazy all around us, but Jesus is on the throne. It's what we preach to ourselves when we are in doubt and we are in fear and we're lacking assurance that we preach to ourselves that Jesus is on the throne. And why is he on the throne? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. He is on the throne because he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So the triumphal entry was a great day of wonderful insight, but also misunderstanding. And in that insight, we see here that there's, there was great joy. There was great joy had by everybody that day, besides the Pharisees, right? By, by everybody rejoicing and praising God for his good works and the amazing things that they've seen. But what, what's the destruction that takes place in their misunderstanding? The death and murder of Jesus a week later. And also, Jesus tells us in verse 41 and 44, the, the consequences of them missing the Messiah, that there was going to be judgment and destruction of Jerusalem. And we know that that was fulfilled in A.D. 70, A.D. 70. And here's the whole thing. The whole point we see in this whole story, which is just incredible to me, is that Jesus saw it all coming. Jesus knew it was all coming. And, and this is the, the, the theme and the idea that I want us to just to kind of hone into this morning. We want to spend our, our time together this morning. We want to look closely at Jesus and what Jesus knew and why he knew it and what he knew. He knew all that was about to happen in Jerusalem, not just in the next week, but 40 years down the line. He knew it all. He knew that he was going to be rejected. He knew that the Pharisees would now get the upper hand over him. 
and that the crowds and his followers and even some of his disciples would quickly change their minds about him and the inevitable he would be led to the cross like a lamb being led to the slaughter. And even after that, within a few decades, Jesus shows us how what's going to happen in Jerusalem. So in this passage, we have to, we have to look deeper than, than what we see at just the surface and just the people praising Jesus on the road and Jesus weeping before the city. We have to look through the lenses of our theology. We need some theology to help us understand. We need some biblical theology to help us understand our passage this morning, this morning because there is so much more that is happening here in this text. God had clearly visited his people in his son. And yet John tells us that he came into his own, in his home, in his own received him not. It looks that he's being received at the triumphal entry, but it doesn't last long because they're going to stumble over him. The, the cornerstone, they will stumble over and they will, they will throw it away. But Jesus knows all this. He knows what's coming. But look how he responds. Verse 41. When he drew near to the city, how does he respond? He weeps over it. He weeps over the city. Because of their blindness. Because of the impending judgment coming to them. So here's what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see in Christ the confidence of our Savior in the sovereign plan of God. The confidence of Christ in the sovereign plan of God and how God's plan is being worked out in this passage. And the second thing I want you to see this morning is I want you to see His sovereign mercy. His sovereign mercy. And as we see these two things, the, the, the confidence that Jesus has in the sovereign plan of God and his sovereign mercy, the, the two goals in that is I want us to admire Jesus more. And I want us to delight in him. Delight in his sovereignty. Delight in his character. Delight in his personhood, delight in his works, and deeply think about those things and then how that would then compel us to live in this life more mercifully as he has shown us great mercy. So let's consider the first one, the sovereign plan of God. I want us to admire Jesus because he is sovereign. Admire Jesus because he is sovereign. Now, throughout Luke's gospel, we have seen sovereignty. We have seen his sovereign authority over sickness. We have seen his sovereign authority over the elements of this world. We have seen his sovereign, sovereign authority over death itself. We have seen how he has been providentially led from one place to the next by the Holy Spirit. That he is sovereignly working out the plan of God. And that would eventually lead him to the cross. You know, one of the most indistinguishable marks of Jesus, and which completely sets him apart than any other character of the Bible or, or any other characters uh, out there, is that we see in Jesus his mercy and his love, 
but we also see his sovereignty. And in that sovereignty, there was this peace and confidence in him. Yeah, yeah, he's good, he's kind, he's compassionate, he's a, he's a good teacher, but he shows his confidence in the sovereignty of God and for his life. So let me show you four places in this text where, I, where we can see him confidently working out in the sovereignty of God. Uh, first, in, in verses 28 through, through 35, where, where most of the text is kind of dedicated to this whole ordeal of getting this donkey, right, or, or colt, uh, or, or horse, however you want to translate it. Sometimes it's used as horse, but, but we definitely see it as donkey uh, here. Uh, in this, there's this, there's this whole ordeal, like you just go tell him to go do this and this and that and, and, and in this. But, but what's that all about? What is, what is this all about? Well, first of all, there's, there's humility and there's, there's peace, right? We see how he's coming in, in humility, riding on a borrowed donkey, and a, a king who rides in a donkey is coming in, 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 in peace. But what else do we see in this, this little ordeal of the disciples being sent early on into Bethany to find this, this, this donkey that's tied up, and then there's going to be an owner that's going to ask you about it, and this is what you, you say to them, and all of that takes place. Well, we see this miraculous foreknowledge of the circumstances under which the disciples find the cult. And what does it demonstrate for us? Well, it demonstrates, as one, commentary, uh, one commentator said, he said, it demonstrates sovereignty over all, over all that must transpire in Jerusalem, even to the smallest detail. Even to the smallest detail that Jesus' foreknowledge increases in proportion to his proximity to the cross. And, and, and also, we see this as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. We read part of that passage this morning in Zechariah. As he rode into town on this donkey, this unridden donkey. And here Jesus is fulfilling Messianic prophecy humbly riding into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, and yet he was in absolute control of the whole situation. And we may think that this might be just minute detail or even could be a coincidence. But those are really coincidences with Jesus that he spoke that definitively would happen. He was in absolute control of that whole thing. And, and second, we see another one. In verses 36 and 37, they, they tell us of, uh, first, how uh, the disciples put him on the colt like, like a king. And, and then second, he, he rode along and the people were spreading their cloaks on the, on the road before, uh, before him. And, and the closer they came to the city, more came out and were spreading their cloaks all the way down to the, to the Mount of Olives, as it says. It says that the whole multitude of his disciples began what? Rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they have seen. And again, this is great insight. And, and these followers did have an expectation of Jesus, but why did they have that expectation of Jesus? Why would they have that expectation of, of Jesus? Well, it says in the passage of why they were praising God, because they have saw the works of miracles. They saw how Jesus had given sight to the blind. 
how he healed the cripple and the lame, how he touched the leopards, uh, lepers and made them clean, how he casted out the unclean spirits who obeyed him, how he calmed the seas and stilled the storms and, and fed thousands of people at a time and walked on water and forgave sinners and changed lives and even raised the dead. They saw all of that, and that's why they had this expectation. They knew Jesus was different. They knew Jesus was sovereign. And if it was, and if it was his will, if it was his will, Jesus could go into Jerusalem and he could have scattered the Romans and he could have killed Pilate with one word. And isn't that all just true of Jesus? Absolutely. Let me show you another. Look at verse 38. Because of the, the crowd's words, it, now it showed, blessed is the king who comes in the name more, peace and glory in heaven, heaven and glory in the highest. What is this telling us here? That Jesus rightfully is the king. He's not just the allegorical king that we saw in the parable last week, but Jesus is the, the king who was appointed by the Lord God. And what's interesting about this is what they said in this passage, it sounds a whole lot like what the angels proclaimed when Jesus was born. And they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth and peace among those whom he is pleased, back in Luke chapter 2. But in Isaiah chapter 9, there's another text that we like to read around Christmas, and it speaks about the Messiah who would come as king, the king that God would send. And, and they, knowing this passage... And seeing the fulfillment of this in Jesus, here's the passage. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do it. And they're looking at Jesus saying, this is it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why? Because of Isaiah 9. That this never-ending, forever king has been sent. And here he is. And he would establish eternal peace and righteousness and justice. And he has been brought forth and established by God himself. And he will bring a peace. He will bring a peace on this earth like none other. But where they got wrong is how that would take place. And how he would accomplish that peace. And you see, again, he reigns on his throne. He rules now. He is sovereign even now over the nations and their government. He is king even now. All governments and all leaders, as Isaiah tells us, I think it's Isaiah 40 or 45, says that all the nations and their leaders are like drops in the water of a bucket before the Lord. And this is the king. And this is the king who has come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Come riding on a donkey. And the people proclaim his blessedness. Lastly, number four, verse 40. Even in his opposition, the opposition that he faced against the, from, the, from the Pharisees, we see his sovereignty. When, when people try to stop him, when the, when the Pharisees say, hey, this has got to stop. You've you got you to gotta stop them, Jesus, from, from praising you. And look at Jesus' words in verse 40. He is still 
sovereign because if the people stop to stop to stop praising him, then what? The very stones would cry out. What stones would cry out? All of the stones would cry out. Even the stones that built the very temple would cry out. Why? Why? Why would the very stones cry out? Because he is the king. And as the king, all creation is under his sovereign rule. He is the son of God, and, and he alone will be praised. He alone will be exalt, exalted. Jesus is only telling us here when he says that the very stones would cry out if no one else is praising, they're going to do it. He is telling us here that this is the very purpose of the whole entire universe, that everything and everyone is meant and created for the glory of God and God alone. That is the sole purpose of the whole entire universe, including the very stones that we drive on and we step on that they too will cry out to the glory of Christ. And if his people won't do it, then he will see to it that the very rocks will. So what does that all mean? It means that he is sovereign. And what he wants is what he gets. He's, this isn't coercion. This isn't manipulation. This isn't fear-driven, like those humans that believe that they can get anything that they want from anybody. No, Jesus reigns in absolute sovereignty. I read something this week, and I think it was A.W. Pink. It sounds like Pink. It said, God's sovereignty simply means that God is God. That God is God. And if Jesus wants the rocks to cry out, then by golly, the rocks are going to cry out. However, there are those who then read verse 41. They, they read verse 41 and they see how Jesus weeps over the lostness as they come over the, the ridge. This is, you can almost, if you know the geography of the area uh, coming into Jerusalem, you, it's literally this is progression up the hill and then he looks down and you can see the city from the Mount of Olives. And, and, and in that, there's this, Jesus weeps over the lostness of Jerusalem. And, they, and there are those who will take this verse and they'll say, see, is, is God really sovereign over everything? Not just of creation, because we're, we're down with that, but, but, but also the hearts of man. And, and they'll say things like this. See, he, he weeps over Jerusalem because his design and his desire for their salvation is, is true. He desires for them to be saved. But the people resist and they reject him and, and will see him handed over to die on the cross. So, so therefore, that must mean that Jesus' purpose has failed. You see, he's weeping. Is that true? Is that true? Is that what Jesus' weeping means? That there's nothing that he can do about Jerusalem? That there's nothing he can do about that? Well, let me ask you this, especially from what we just heard in verses four, verse 40. If Jesus can make the very rocks cry out in delight and joy from him, could he not do the same in the rock-hard hearts in Jerusalem? Absolutely. So in his coming persecution and being handed over to the Gentiles and him being spit on and hung on the cross, 
None of that was a failure. None of that was a failure of Jesus' plan. That's not why he was on the mount weeping that day. He wasn't on the mount weeping that day because God somehow failed between creation and the cross. But rather, but rather what Jesus sees here is he sees the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. He sees the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan taking place. Look back to Luke 18, verses 31 through 33. This is just one of three examples where Jesus tells his disciples, this is going to take place. And us going to Jerusalem and the cross and my death and my resurrection is the whole plan and it's the whole purpose. And just like it was hidden from the disciples earlier who did not understand it, verse 42, it was providentially sovereignly hidden from the people. Verse 42, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, what we see taking place here between Jesus' triumphal entry and Jesus weeping over Jerusalem is we see him, his confidence in the sovereign hand of God. The confidence in the sovereign hand of God. So then why did he weep? Why would this sovereign king weep? Well, the answer to that question is actually in our second point. The second thing I want us to admire today, and that is his sovereign mercy. His sovereign mercy. In, in verses 41 through 44, there's, there's certainly a lot of judgment there, and that judgment will be fulfilled, like I said before, in AD 70 when, when Jerusalem is, is destroyed. But, but judgment wasn't the only purpose that he is stating here. But what we see here is we see his sovereign mercy. And, and, and again, we need more theology to help us understand this passage and what's taking place here. So, so passages like Romans 9 helps us out here. Passages like Romans 9 helps us out here. It says in Romans 9, verse 15, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have compassion. Meaning God sovereignly softens hearts and God sovereignly hardens hearts according to his will and according to his purposes. And that's what we see in the tears of Jesus and all that's taking place here. We see Jesus weeping over the hard-hearted Jerusalem. The hard-hearted Jerusalem. Not in opposition to his father, not in opposition to the, to the plan of God, not in contradiction to his, to his sovereignty, but no, what, what we're seeing here is we're seeing sorrowfulness in his sovereignty and in his tears. And that Jesus and God can be both. And this, again, is one of the reasons why Jesus is just so glorious and beautiful and just like none other. Because even simultaneously, he is showing his sovereign reign and sovereign power. We see his sovereign mercy working together. And we see both on display in this passage. If, if Jesus was just sovereign and he was just omnipotent and omniscient and holy, then how terrifying would Jesus be? How terrifying would he be? What hope would any of us have? But he is also sovereign in mercy as well. 
which is why he's so glorious and why he's so wonderful and why he's so omnibenevolent, good and beautiful. It's why we sing some of the songs we do. We sing, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. And we sing, praise to the Lord, who for over all things so wonderfully reigneth, shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy desires have been granted in what he ordaineth? Or, by this we know love, that he laid down his life. God's very own son came from heaven to die, suspended he hung as he shed his own blood. What grace in his pardon. By this we know love. We sing those because we admire his sovereign power and we admire his sovereign mercy as well. So let's admire his sovereign mercy, but also his sovereign power. And I want to show you three ways from this passage where Jesus is merciful, or from the passage and how Jesus is merciful, and then how that works for us in the ways that we can be merciful. Number one, we see him mercifully moved. Don't we see Jesus mercifully moved? This is what's taking place in verse 41. He feels deeply about the sorrow of the situation for Jerusalem. For Jerusalem. And, and again, being moved like that doesn't mean that his sovereign plan is shattering against the, the free will of man. No, what it means is Jesus is far more emotionally complex and deep than we probably have ever thought he really was. He feels the sorrow and pain of the whole situation, including judgment. But just because he is weeping doesn't mean that there's, there's not an inner peace that he has with God. Believing and knowing that in all that's about to take place, including the judgment upon Jerusalem, that he is not believing in the peace with God, that God is in complete control and that God's sovereign plan is wise and good and is always working for good because even what is meant for evil, God is still meaning for good. Let me illustrate that. When we go to a Christian funeral, you can catch a glimpse of that. Because where we feel a deep sadness, and a sadness because of the, the loss and the hurt and the, and, the, and the weeping, because there is the sting of death. But if we know that person is a Christian, and we know that that person has assurance in Christ and in Christ alone, that that sorrow, that pain, that loss, that, that weeping is then, is then also mingled together in this solid rock of inner peace, isn't there? Because inside of it we know God is still good, and we know God is still in control of all things, including the number of our days. That he is sovereign over life and that he is sovereign over death. That he is sovereign in grace and he's sovereign in mercy. And that alone is the root of our assurance. So we can weep. We can weep. And we should weep, but we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. That's what these passages mean. So what does this mean? 
This means that it's okay to cry sometimes. And you know what? I, I think, I pray that God would sometimes give us more tears when it's necessary. Because when we think deeply, as Jesus is thinking deeply, we will feel deeply. And there's so much pain, and there's so much evil, and there's so much suffering, and there's so much brokenness in this world. From what we've seen this past week in the Bahamas, to the car accident death of a couple from Statesboro last week coming home from a ball game. I don't, I don't know those people. I've never seen them. I don't think I've ever met them in my life. But we can weep with those who are weeping. And we can feel deeply. We can do that with our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces and our homes. We should feel the loss as Jesus does and weep with those who are weeping. You know, when on the day of judgment, when Jesus asks of account, and we're one of them servants from the parable, and he might ask the question, how did you feel about the suffering around you? I, I can tell you confidently right now that an insignificant answer would be, I saw right through them, Jesus. They got what they deserved because of their own choices and their own sin. That's going to be an insignificant answer before a merciful Savior who bore the pain and the suffering that was due toward us and was merciful toward us. Because we certainly will not get what we deserve. If our hearts are too hard to weep with those who are suffering and weeping, then maybe we haven't admired our sovereign, merciful Savior and King enough. And if needed, let's repent of this. Because we want to be more like our Savior, don't we? Secondly, we need to see him as, we need to see him mercifully selfless. Mercifully selfless. And, and I mean this in the sense that, that Jesus was selfless and self-denying in, in the short run. Because in the long run, he's going to reign at the right hand of the Father, right? But in the short hand of things, Jesus was uh, was selfless and self-denying of himself, right? Who took on flesh and became man, and not uh, considered himself uh, 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 where he reigned with God. He, uh, anyways, I'm going to mess that up. Philippians chapter 2. You can go back and look at that. I'll tell you all about it. But very much so what this text tells us is that and shows us is that Jesus is moving closer and closer and closer toward the cross. Toward what? Self-denying and selflessness mercifully selflessness. He, he may be coming into Jerusalem as a humble, peaceful king, but this king was going to be delivered over to die. And, and this is the self-denial of Jesus, the selflessness of Jesus, that he was completely obedient to the will of his father, even unto death on a cross. And, and again, brothers and sisters, what, 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 what does this mean for us? Well, how has Jesus called us to follow him as a disciple? He has called us to daily deny ourselves, to mercifully deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and follow him, to submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to submit ourselves to one another, to give our whole life making an investment for his kingdom. One way to do this 
very simple, basic, practical way. In a broken, fallen world, one way to do this is that when we see a need, we mercifully meet those needs at our own self of our, of our own of our own selflessness, our own self-denial. Because we see this in Jesus. We see this in Jesus. Rescuing sinners in a fallen, broke, broken and lost, destined to eternal hell, we move more like Jesus because this is what Jesus has done. You see, the tears that Jesus shed that day were not just tears of emotion that did nothing. But they, they were the tears of a man on the road meeting the greatest need of all of humanity. And that is reconciliation with God. So let's walk that road. Let's walk that road as ambassadors of reconciliation and self-denial and self-sacrifice. And lastly, we see him mercifully helping. Mercifully helping. Mercy doesn't just move us to feel deeply, though it does. It doesn't just lead us to be selfless, and though it does, but it actually leads us to do something, to help when help is required and help is needed. Jesus was dying in our place that, that we might be forgiven and that we might have eternal life with him. That's how Jesus helped. So what will it be for you? How do you give mercy? How are you merciful to friends and family? How are you merciful to coworkers and roommates and fellow church members and maybe even enemies or people you just meet on the street? Are there areas around you where you can be a minister of mercy? Are there people around you that you could help by being merciful to? When we wrestle in our hearts with the question, should I or should I not help? Do not underestimate the benefits of self-denial. Do not underestimate of self-denial in, in helping others. Because in the short run, it'll help us be more like Christ and follow Jesus more. But in the long run, in the long run, our joy will be multiplied in Christ and in him and not on the things of this world. I told you in the beginning that my hope for us this morning is that we would see and delight and admire Jesus for his sovereignty and his sovereign mercy. The disciples in the crowd that day, they rejoiced and they praised God, but we know that it wasn't enough. Although it was insightful and it was good, it wasn't complete. But that's not the case for us, or should it be? Meaning, our worship and our joy in Jesus should not only be insightful, but it, our joy is being made complete in him. And this is why we engage deep theology, and we can look at texts like this, and we can, excuse me, see his sovereignty, and we can see his sovereign mercy. Because we engage with this theology, and we've been given the Holy Spirit. And we've been given the, the Word of God so that when we engage the, Holy, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit leads us, then we can admire Jesus. And when we admire Him for all that He is and who He is, 
then our joy is becoming more and more complete and fuller. More full, if that's a word, is that a word? Does that work? More full, fuller, fuller, fuller than those who worship Jesus that day. That we could praise him and that we can rejoice in him as a church, as his people, in a greater, more fulfilled, insightful way than the very people who are throwing their cloaks down before him and looking at him face to face. Because we see him clearer. We see him greater. And so let's end with this simple question. When you admire Jesus' sovereign plan and in him fulfilling that plan in his sovereign mercy, do you rejoice and praise God for his good works in your life? Working his sovereign plan in your life? In his sovereign mercy being worked out in your heart and in your life? Does that bring you joy? Does that make your joy complete? Does that move you to rejoicing and praising God so that in your heart, your mouth will say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace not only in heaven, but in my heart and glory in the highest. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the king who has come to bring peace. And he has brought peace through his death, through his suffering so that we now would have peace with God. So pray now, Lord, as your people, that we would embrace these things. As we've seen the, the glorious truths of your sovereign plan work, even in these events. And yet also, what's so wonderful is your mercy on display, your sovereign mercy. And so, Lord, help us to rejoice in those things. And as we respond, let us be an encouragement to one, one another. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.